Introduction to the Letters of John Huss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Letters of John Huss by Emile de Bonachose, translated by Campbell Mackenzie. Introduction and Preface towards the end of the fourteenth century there was born in bohemia a man whose name is inseparably connected with one of the most important revolutions of modern europe his history i have narrated in a preceding work i there place before my readers the great events of that memorable epoch and exhibited on the stormy stage of the world this christian whose death even more than his life agitated his country and all germany my object in the present work is to complete the first to finish the portrait of the illustrious reformer of bohemia by making him also known in his domestic life the effusions of his private intercourse the man is completely revealed in his correspondence and i here publish all that the friends of huss have handed down to us these letters, which are translated now for the first time into our tongue, were never intended for the public eye, having been addressed by Huss to his disciples and friends, to be perused far from the view of his enemies and under the shade of the domestic roof. They furnish most precious documents to history, and are unquestionable testimonies of the spirit and character of their author though they are not remarkable either for profundity of thought or for style and singularity of doctrine there nevertheless exhales an innocent candor and an angelic piety like a fragrant perfume from every page what especially pervades them are the christian thoughts on the fall of man and his regeneration through jesus christ the conviction that all the things of this world pass away and are but the shadows of things eternal that man is nothing without god that there is nothing but darkness or false lights wherever the divine flame does not penetrate and lastly above all these thoughts subsists that which embraces all the rest that faith is life we behold in his correspondence a soul superior to seduction as well as to terror a firm and upright reason which penetrates every subtlety originates in the conscience alone clings tenaciously to what appears to it to be the truth as to man's most precious possession as to the treasure which has nothing to fear neither from rust nor robber matthew six twenty huss was one of those spirits more contemplative than practical which after having recognized an idea as true admit of no medium or arrangement in propagating it and concern themselves for the consequences not more for others than for themselves the inflexibility of his character equaled his probity of feeling and it may be affirmed that in all respects both by the heart and the intelligence huss was of the number of those who appear in the world as if predestined to martyrdom 
yet he sought not after it like a passionate sectarian or a blind enthusiast he was as far from possessing that pride which complacently feeds itself on its own conceptions as from that sullen fanaticism which causes a man voluntarily to shorten his life by useless rashness through dint of persuading himself that death is desirable before entering into a contest with his superiors john huss hesitated consulted and examined visited with ecclesiastical censures at prague he knew not whether he should obey and be silent or continue to preach the gospel i burn says he with an ardent seal for the gospel and my soul is sad for i know not what to resolve on at a later period at constance when condemned and ready to die he wrote i exhort you in the name of the lord to detest every error that you may discover in my works but keeping in mind this truth which i have ever had in view pray for me he faithfully depicts his feelings in a letter which he addressed at the same period to the priest martin his disciple an admirable letter a true model of prudence and every christian virtue attach thy soul to the reading of the bible and especially the new testament fear not death if thou desirest to live with christ for he has said himself fear not those who kill the body but who cannot destroy the soul if they should trouble you on account of thy adhesion to my doctrines answer i believe my master to have been a good christian and touching on what he has taught and written i have neither read nor understood all huss was neither a superstitious man nor a visionary nevertheless he had visions and received warnings in his sleep he foresaw what came to pass yet refused to attach faith to his dreams he does not dare to place trust in them and distrusts his senses rather than slight the authority of a single precept of his god he repeats this text place no confidence in dreams and after having related them to his friends he adds i write this not because i consider myself a prophet or that i would exalt myself but to show i have suffered bodily and mental temptations as well as a great fear of transgressing the commandments of the lord resignation was predominant in his mind the most absolute submission to the divine will as well as an ardent desire to become acquainted with it pray says he fervently to the lord that he may grant me his spirit that i may dwell in the truth and be delivered from all evil if my death should add to his glorification pray it may arrive speedily and that he may enable me to support my ills with constancy but should it be better for my salvation that i return amongst you we will implore of god to enable me to return from the council without a spot that i may keep back nothing from the truth of the gospel of christ in order to be enabled to discover more surely its light and bequeath to our brethren a good example to follow 
the sacrifice which he made of his life was the more exemplary and his martyrdom the more sublime because he had felt beforehand all the terrors of death it was in god that he sought for support against them beseech the lord to grant me the assistance of his spirit that i may confess his name even unto death i shall stand in need of his divine aid although i am confident he will not suffer me to be tried beyond my strength his confidence in god did not forsake him to the last moment our saviour says he raised lazarus from the dead after the fourth day he could also snatch me from prison and death i an unfortunate man if it were for his glory for the advantage of the faithful and my own good and yet when in chains and awaiting death he is more occupied with the interests of others than his own his soul calm pious and compassionate sympathizes with all around him his jailers are exhorted and instructed by him he thinks with tenderness of his disciples of the faithful believers of his church of his friends the sight of his benefactors draws tears from his eyes and he writes to them in these touching terms generous seigneurs my comforters and faithful defenders of the truth you whom god has sent me as my angels i cannot fully express how much i am grateful for so much constancy and for all the charitable kindness you have shown me a weak sinner but servant in hope of jesus christ his poverty being great he regrets not being able to remunerate his friends who have assisted him with money he bequeaths them all he possesses which is but little for the surplus of his debts he addresses an appeal with a confidence altogether christian to all who are rich and conjures them to pay for him those who are poor he promises them in exchange for the worldly riches which they advance to him spiritual and imperishable wealth every word that falls from his lips or his pen affords signs of that virtue so well defined by the apostle of that charity so mild patient and benevolent to which nothing is indifferent because in everything it finds an opportunity of exercising itself usefully and fulfilling a duty at the approach of death he feels his ardent zeal redoubled for the salvation of his brethren and dear disciples and includes in the same solicitude all those who have listened to his preaching and in his last exhortations no one is accepted when on the point of appearing before the king of heaven all earthly distinctions vanish before his eyes and the soul of the obscure workman is to him as precious as that of the monarch his own soul presents an unalterable calm amidst the most cruel pains and sometimes unbends to a sweet and tranquil gaiety though a prey to so many outrages he utters neither threat nor murmur he pardons his enemies he blesses and adores the hand of god which tries him and sees in these rigors only marks of his love shortly before his death he writes to his friends thus 
when we shall meet hereafter in a happy eternity you will know with what clemency the lord deigns to assist me in my trials such does john huss appear in the edifying letters of which we here present the translation and it is impossible to peruse them without repeating with luther if this man was not a generous and intrepid martyr and confessor of christ certainly it will be difficult for any man to be saved we have penetrated in every direction into the mind so eminently christian we have shown in all its aspects this soul so marked with candor and so powerful and now it remains to us to assign to john huss his place among the men who have agitated the world and to determine the work which is personal to him what in fact he has left behind him that is durable to succeed in such an endeavor we must take into account a prejudice which still prevailed at that period false notions had for centuries been in circulation and had taken root in christendom relative to the authority of individual convictions judgment and conscience it was denied that man sustained by divine grace could find in himself any assistance it was believed to be a meritorious act of christian virtue to seek for no direction in one's own internal feeling and to trample reason underfoot an opinion was adopted not because in itself it had been found conformable to the scriptures or to truth but because it was considered to agree with the decisions of some great doctor pope or council or because it was found in augustine origin or jerome tradition alone was listened to and it was altogether forgotten that the first christians who had sprung from the jews and gentiles were accustomed to consult their conscience before all in face of the altars of paganism or of the temple still standing in jerusalem and that they took for their only guide this secret and inflexible monitor a few eloquent men few great minds had it is true consulted their individual opinions rather than yield to clerical and traditional authority abelard and beringer in france had given proof of boldness and independence in proclaiming their doctrines but they grew timid when it was necessary to defend them their voices died away and their heads were bowed low before the menaces of popes and councils in italy armand de bresse had ventured openly to resist the pontifical power but the revolution of which he gave the signal was a civil rather than a religious one numerous sects and whole populations had in different countries emancipated themselves from the yoke by depending on that irresistible force which the sympathy of the masses and the association with the whole nation creates in order to think believe and suffer england in fin had witnessed a powerful mind that of wycliffe nourished by the scriptures bring to light a body of doctrine from which at a later period sprang the code of the reformation but wycliffe escaped alive the solemn sentence of an ecumenical council and many doubt whether he could have passed triumphantly through that formidable ordeal 
it was reserved for the little town of constance to afford a spectacle which the world had not witnessed for ages there one man weakened by sickness and long imprisonment isolated from a few friends dispersed and trembling resisted strong in the gospel and in his conscience all that external authority could display to intimidate and subjugate souls he yields not before the efforts of all the spiritual and temporal powers united john huss lastly by his example still more than by his doctrines reopened to the christian world a path that had long been closed and if it is permitted to compare sacred things with profane affected in the sphere of religion and morality what at a later period columbus brought to pass in the external and physical world he laid open a new empire or to speak more correctly he discovered a domain which had been forgotten for ages that of the conscience in matters of faith inquiry was a feel interdicted to all huss entered on it anew in the midst of hostile clamors and reopened it amidst the noise of the thunder and the tempest he fell in his attempt but it was important to prove that the conscience of the christian was stronger than all the powers of earth for that end one of those sublime sacrifices which terminate in death was requisite john huss therefore must die and in his death consisted his victory it was the firmness of his character which gave him influence over people like most of those whose passage through the world has left the most durable impression he was great especially by the heart and although he was by the qualities of his mind one of the most distinguished men of his age yet his greatness was rather moral than intellectual he established no new system nor attached his name to any religious creed and his glory is in consequence the purer not being the author of his doctrines he had no personal interest in their triumph and the love of the truth did not in his heart confound itself with vanity he was not able to obtain external liberty for religious worship but he did more for by his faith by his courage before a tribunal the most elevated in the opinions of men by the vast renown of his virtues condemnation and martyrdom he caused a part of europe to understand the sacred right of that freedom of conscience which when properly employed constitutes the christian equally on the throne as in chains john huss in a word greatly contributed to bring back christianity to its primitive character that of being the religion of the heart and to restore its real spirit a spirit of life of progress and of liberty if religion be not this if it be the monopoly of a college of priests or the privilege of a sect it becomes immediately exclusive intolerant and oppressive the history of antiquity as well as of modern times teaches us that men who constitute themselves as infallible interpreters of the divinity 
make their gods after their own likeness. The creator of the world would soon be no longer in their mouths a compassionate father who gives to all his children on earth an equal right of approaching him in adoration and prayer, and who presents his word to all minds, like his son, to the regards of every creature. But a jealous master, ever ready to punish and strike at the will of his interpreters, at the cry of those who call themselves the representatives of his power. Religion would no longer be that celestial and internal bond which attracts the soul to God by love. It would become the yoke which masters externally by constraint, a dreadful instrument of punishment to the souls which it abases, by placing them under restraint, and more destructive, if possible, to men's minds than to their bodies. It is on this account that the generous Christians of all churches who have heroically resisted the oppressors of the conscience are justly entitled to the imperishable admiration and gratitude of all who adore in spirit and in truth. Among these, no man was ever more remarkable than John Huss, for no other ever did more to restore to the conscience in the heart of man that throne which it ought never to have abdicated. End Introduction Preliminary Notice The letters of John Huss were collected by his friend, Peter Maldonievitz, the notary, and it was the great reformer of the 16th century, Martin Luther, who first published them, rendering justice to the faith, doctrines, and noble character of their author. Luther at first translated into Latin four letters written by Huss in Bohemia and published them in 1536, together with those which the nobles of Bohemia and Moravia had addressed to the Council of Constance. Wittenberg was the place where he published them on the occasion of a general council being convoked by Paul III. He joined to these letters a preface, of which the following is an extract. My object in publishing these letters, said Luther, is, if God should permit the council to assemble, to warn such persons as might be present, to beware of following the example of the Council of Constance, in which the truth was exposed to such lengthened and such violent attacks. Nevertheless, it triumphs now, and holding erect its victorious head, shows forth that guilty assembly in its true colors. Undoubtedly God has sufficiently manifested in that council how he resists the proud and confounds the haughty by their own imaginations without paying any consideration to outward dignity. The following year, Luther published a complete edition of the letters of John Huss and prefixed to it a preface which we subjoin, and in which he enumerates with great power the principal claims of Huss to the esteem and admiration of posterity. This preface also contains some interesting and curious details, and Luther even narrates in it the strong impression produced on himself in his youth at first reading by chance some of the writings of that Christian whom he had been taught to execrate as a dreadful heretic. 
luther is supposed to have drawn up the summary of contents which are found at the head of most of the letters of john huss in the collection of his works and we have most carefully preserved them the letters of john huss are divided into two series each of which refers to a different period of his life the first is that of his interdiction and exile from prague in the years fourteen ten and fourteen eleven the second comprehends the period which elapsed from his departure from the council till his death preface of dr martin luther to the letters of john huss published by him in the year fifteen thirty seven in order to render more prudent and to instruct by means of the tyrannical judgments of the council of constance all theologians that may be hereafter called to sit in a council of the roman church should any man read these letters or hear them read being at the same time in possession of a sound intelligence and in the face of god having a regard for his own conscience he will not i am convinced hesitate to allow that john huss was endowed with the precious gifts of the holy spirit observe in fact how firmly he clung in his writings and his words to the doctrines of christ with what courage he struggled against the agonies of death with what patience and humility he suffered every indignity and with what greatness of soul he at last confronted a cruel death in defense of the truth doing all these things alone and unaided before an imposing assembly of the most powerful and eminent men like a lamb in the midst of wolves and lions if such a man is to be regarded as a heretic no person under the sun can be looked on as a true christian by what fruits then shall we recognize the truth if it is not manifest by those with which john huss was so richly adorned the greatest crime of john huss was his having declared that a man of impious life was not the head of the universal church he allowed him to be the chief of a particular church but not of the universal one just the same as a minister of the word whose life is criminal still remains minister according to external appearance although he is not on that account a member of the saints in his church in a similar manner john huss denied that an impious and flagitious pontiff was a worthy one although seated on the throne of the church it is as if we should declare that judas being both traitor and robber was not an honest man although he had been called to the function of an apostle every effort in fact was made to prevail on john huss to admit that a criminal pope ought to be regarded as a saint and was infallible that his words and acts were alike holy and ought to be received and respected as so many articles of faith all the men of the council of constance wise as they were considered would have lent a favorable ear to such assertions they who when they had dethroned three culpable pontiffs did not allow to any one the right of condemning them to the flames but when john huss said the same things they dragged him at once to the stake 
the door was once more thrown open to similar events by the indulgences which the roman pontiffs scattered with such profusion over the whole world and by the jubilee which he instituted at rome to build the church of st peter for the pope amongst his other inventions declared and afterwards confirmed by his bulls that the souls of such persons as having undertaken a pilgrimage to rome should happen to die on the way should at once take flight to heaven and in his quality of god on earth and god's viceroy he orders most peremptorily the angels to bear such souls upwards on rapid cars tetzel the bearer of the indulgences of the bishop of mentz in like manner taught that the souls would spring from purgatory to heaven as soon as the clink of the money paid into the treasury should be heard but when shortly after he was confounded and put to shame he shut his impotent mouth it was to oppose such impieties calculated as they were to disgust even a brute animal that john huss preacher of the word of god at the chapel of bethlehem at prague put himself forward he denied that any such power was given to the roman pontiff who he boldly declared might be mistaken in that as well as many other things having then taken the great liberty of inculcating that the pope can err a heresy then considered far more frightful than to deny jesus christ he was constrained by violence to confirm what he had maintained in saying that an impious pope was not a pious one all then were in wild commotion like so many wild boars and they gnashed their teeth and knit their brows bristled up their coats and at last rushing precipitously on him delivered him cruelly and wickedly to the flames one of the first articles that it was necessary to admit at that period was that the roman pontiff was infallible and such was the opinion of the jurisconsults of the roman court it did not appear presumable that any error could emanate from so elevated a quarter but when personal presumptions are formed it often comes to pass too much is presumed the extraordinary mistake of these men on so important a point and the manifest outrages which john huss suffered from them only served to animate him with greater courage a conscience pure of all crime before god and before the world affords a man a great consolation in his misfortunes and if his suffering should be for the name and the glory of god the holy spirit the comforter of the afflicted immediately comes to his aid and lends him assistance against the world and against demons as christ has promised matthew ten in these words it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father who speaks in you and luke twenty one for i will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to resist and gainsay i have heard from some persons worthy of faith that the emperor maximilian said in speaking of john huss they have done great injustice to that excellent man 
Erasmus of Rotterdam, in his early writings, now in my possession, has declared that John Huss had been burned, but not convinced. And the general opinion amongst pious men of that day was that he had been loaded with outrage and violence. I will relate here what Dr. Staupitz narrated to me of a conversation which he had with his predecessor, Andrew Proles, a man of birth and merit, relative to the rose of Dr. John Zacharias. This Zacharias was represented in the cloisters bearing a rose in his hat as a distinction for him and an affront to John Huss. Proles, seeing this image, said, I would not consent to wear that rose. Staupitz, having inquired for what motive, Proles replied, When it was maintained before the Council of Constance against John Huss that the Pope could not be represented by anyone, Dr. Zacharias brought forward the passage of Ezekiel, chapter 34, It is I who am above the shepherds, and not the people. John Huss denied that these words could be found to form part of the chapter alluded to, and Zacharias offered to prove the contrary, from the very Bible which John Huss had brought from Bohemia, for Zacharias, like many others, had often visited Huss for the purpose of convincing him, and he had, by chance, happened to perceive the passage in question. The Bible was then produced in the assembly, and it showed that Zacharias was right. John Huss, nevertheless, maintained that the Bible was not a correct one, and that the other versions would not confirm it. But being overwhelmed by the clamors of his adversaries, he lost his cause, and Zacharias received a rose from the council, in perpetual memory of this fact. And yet, observed Proles, it is certain that these words are not found in any correct Bible whether manuscript or printed, and that they all testify against Zacharias. Such was the account of Proles to Dr. Staupitz. The verse alluded to is found in all German, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew Bibles, and it was quoted by John Huss. But at Constance they could not admit it in any other way than as quoted by Zacharias, who deserved neither to receive the rose nor to wear it. The adversaries of John Huss's opinion have themselves testified to his learning. Thirty years back I heard several able theologians declare that John Huss was an exceedingly superior doctor, and that he surpassed in erudition and knowledge all the persons composing the council. His writings, and among others, his treatise on the church and his sermons, confirm this eulogium. When I was a divinity student at Erfurt, my hand happened to alight one day in the library of the monastery on a volume of John Huss's sermons. Having read on the cover of the work the words, Sermons of John Huss, I was immediately inflamed with a desire to ascertain, by perusing this book that had escaped from the flames, and was thus preserved in a public library, what heresies he had disseminated. I was struck with amazement as I read on, and was filled with an astonishment difficult to describe as I sought out for what reason so great a man, 
a doctor so worthy of veneration and so powerful in expounding the scriptures had been burnt to death but the name of Huss was at that period such an object of execration that i absolutely believed that if i spoke of him in terms of praise the heavens would fall on me and the sun veil his light having then closed the book i withdrew sad at heart and i remarked to myself by way of consolation perhaps he wrote those things before he fell into heresy at that time i was still ignorant of what had passed in the council of constance all that i could say would only add infinitely to the high character of john huss his adversaries render him a striking though unintentional testimony for if their clouded eyes could open to the light they would blush at the remembrance of the things which they themselves narrate the author of a collection of the acts of the council written in german and enriched with very remarkable details endeavors with all his power to cover with odium the cause of john huss and yet he declares that when huss beheld himself stripped of all the dignities of his order he smiled with intrepid firmness according to the same author also huss when conducted to the funeral pile constantly repeated jesus son of god have pity on me at the sight of the fatal stake to which he was to be fixed in order to be burned he fell on his knees and cried out jesus son of the living god who suffered for us all have pity on me beholding a peasant bringing some wood to feed the flames he again smiled with mildness and uttered these words of saint jerome o oh, holy simplicity a priest having drawn nigh and demanded if he desired to confess huss replied that he was ready to do so and the priest having insisted on the necessity of abjuring john huss refused saying that he did not consider himself guilty of any mortal sin the man who in the agony of death invoked with so firm a heart jesus the son of god who for such a cause delivered up his body to the flames with so strong a faith and so steadfast a constancy if such a man i repeat deserves not to be considered a generous and intrepid martyr and true follower of christ it will be difficult for anyone to be saved jesus christ himself has declared he who confesses me before men him will i also confess before my father what more shall i say the roman pontiff raises many men to the rank of saints of whom it would be difficult to predicate if they are with the elect or with the devils and he precipitates into hell a man like this when it results from the examination of his whole life that his place is in heaven i have again specified these matters in order that they may serve as a salutary warning to such of our theologians as may repair to the approaching council for should they resemble the men who assembled at the council of constance the same thing will happen to them as to their predecessors the acts which they will be anxious to conceal and bury in oblivion shall be dragged forth to the open day 
and published everywhere. The doctors of Constance were convinced that no person would ever presume to accuse them, either by word or writing, and much less in the teeth of the cruelest menaces, to honor John Huss as a saint, and condemn them for their conduct. Events have, on the contrary, either by me or by others, verified the predictions of John Huss. Our theologians, strong in their authority, anticipate no peril. I admit their power to be equal to what they possessed in John Huss's time. But it is not less certain that he who then judged at their tribunal now sits in a place where his judges must give way before him. End of the Preliminary Notice to the Letters of John Huss by Emile de Bonachose, translated by Campbell Mackenzie.